You know, it's really, really good to be with you guys because sometimes you speak someplace and you have a bunch of strangers, and I am to most of you, but we have history with you. You don't even know it, but when we, um, we would come out here to visit on, on vacations, and we came here. On our, our family came here multiple times, so I've kind of been part of your worship and part of things, and it's really an honor and a privilege to be part of this journey that you're on. And I'm, they don't pay me to say this. I'm going to tell you, something good is going on here. Can I just tell you as an outsider coming in, something good is going on here. And I think you're in for a season where something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but I'm excited to see. And I just am glad to be part of it. Let me, um, let me tell you just uh, two, two things really is all you need to know about me to know me. And like, like Rick mentioned, I'm originally from New York City. And so I'm a lifelong New York Mets and New York Jets fan. And that means I have suffered. Okay. Here's the other thing that, you, that it would just help you know. For pretty much my entire adult life, my married life, I have been the only male in a house full of females. All right, I have a wife. That's her over there. Okay, Marcia. I have two daughters. Our dogs have been female. And that, that's what this means. That, that means this. I don't know anything about anything. I don't have, I've, I've learned that I don't have a single bit of fashion sense. All my jokes are really bad. And I will never understand the other gender. So, I don't know why I'm here. But at least I get a chance to act like I know something. So thank you for that. And, and you know, the, the Bible Project's great. And you've just heard a, a great overview of Esther. And I'm not going to retell the story. But as you've been doing, I'm just, what I want to do with you. It has, has been the pattern. I want to reflect on it with, with you for a little bit, learn a few things, observe a few things about, about the, this story. And by the way, it's one of my favorite stories because it really is like a movie. It, I mean, it's like a crazy movie. The whole thing, it's been done as movies pretty poorly several times, but, but it, it is, it's such a cool story. Um, and then just kind of, and then what I want to do is say, okay, but so what? I mean, so what for our lives? So what for how you're living and how I'm living? It's, it's an interesting story, but does it matter at all? So think with, with me about this, and let me ask you, have you ever been in a position, have you ever found yourself where you were kind of like the, you're just the outsider in a certain place? You, you weren't like the people there, or, or maybe you even kind of knew, knew or know, they just don't like me. Some of you are in that position now somewhere, that there's a family event, or there's a job situation, there's a neighborhood, and you just don't feel like, you're just different from everybody else, you, have you been in that position? When you're in the position, you know that it's really awkward. And it's, it's very unsettling. I, I experienced that really fairly early in my life because, as I mentioned, I was born in Brooklyn, and my parents, as we were growing up, decided, were trying to figure out what's the best thing they could do for their kids. I have a brother. That for their kids growing up in New York City, and they figured the best thing they could do for their children growing up in New York was to move away from New York. And so we moved to southern Indiana when I was in grade school. Now, I, I, if you've ever been to that kind of part of the world, you know it is polar opposite of different, of, of how it feels. And so I found myself thrust into this place where I'm kind of an outsider. And this happened the fir first day of school in my new school. I walked to the school. There's things like, there's dirt and grass and trees. I'd never even seen this stuff in my life. 
growing up in New York, it was, it was fairly pr- pretty simple. I mean, what we did was we played stoop ball in the street, and we fought each other. <laughs> it was kind of a pastime. And this happened, I mean, it was a daily occurrence. I'm not making this up. I mean, it was a daily occurrence, and it, this is how it would happen. There were two, you know, two kids would be playing stoop ball or doing something on the street, and then they'd have a tension, and then they'd go, they'd charge at each other, and this is pretty much how it worked. They'd be friends, but they'd go after each other, and one would reach out, and he would kick the other one in the groin. When he doubled over cricket in the groin, then you, the, the next guy would bring his knee up and, and knee him in the face. He would get, fall down to the, to the sidewalk, and then they'd take his head and beat his head against the sidewalk until, his, until he bled. First one who bleeds loses. You get up, and you play again. This, this was a, a, a regular event for me growing up, and, I, and, and again, I'm not exaggerating. I never want to fight. I always bled first. It was rough. I'd have, there's a kid down the block named Vito. He was like two, two and a half feet tall. We all, he was bald. And he had a bulgy face like a bulldog. We thought he was a middle-aged man. He was in kindergarten with us. He would come down and ask my parents if I could come out and play just because he felt like beating somebody up. So I'm, I'm displaced, and I go to Indiana. I walk, and there's this grassy area outside this there's a playground they have jungle gyms and stuff out you know outside the school and kids are gathered around and I walk up to go to the school and I completely out of place now this is going to date me a little bit but at that time in New York in grade school we were this is public school we were required to wear a tie and so my mom had all bunch of these clip-on ties, and she'd say, oh, forget the tie. She'd clip on that tie, and I'd walk up. So I'm walk up for my first day of school into this place and in southern Indiana. These people have never seen a tie in their lives. But I walk up, and there's just all these kids doing stuff, and I just stand there. I'm intimidated. I don't know what to do. And, and kids are doing stuff, and then I get noticed. And somebody looks, and then people start laughing. And, and people, there's a buzz that starts. And then this one kid, bigger kid, found out later his name's Carl. Carl steps up. Turns out he's the alpha dog of the playground, you know, the school, elementary school. And he walks up and he goes, what's with the tie? I'm just, I, I just going to school. I just stand there. I don't say anything. Kids start laughing and Carl steps a little bit closer and he goes, what's your name, kid? Well, and my, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, so I say in my really thick Brooklyn accent, Tommy Bernardo. <laughs> he starts laughing. He goes, you talk funny. Well, he's, actually, he's from Southern Indiana, so he kind of goes, you talk funny. <laughs> he goes, you want to make something of it? Do I want to make something of it? I'm standing there. He steps forward, and a circle instantly forms. And you know what that means. There's, there's going to be a fight. And I, I, and I suddenly find my place in a foreign environment, in a situation I didn't ask for, with no resources to do anything. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Because it leads into Esther. Because sometimes you, like Esther, and I find ourselves in a situation where we just are not liked, we're not different, we don't fit in, we're not respected, whatever it might be. And sometimes that's exactly why God has you there. 
Now, Esther is the last of the historical books in the first section of the Old Testament. You'll see it if you have it. If you, if you can access it, you got a Bible with you, you got a device, would you just take a look? I'm going to point out just a couple parts of it. And so it's right before the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Pro- Proverbs, and that. So Esther is right before that. And it, as we heard, it is, um, it, it comes fr- it's right at the time, at right at, it's after the Babylonian captivity. Um, so it's, it's set probably in about 486 B.C., um, and, and, and you get this overview, and I'm just going to read a couple little things, just kind of set the pace for where the setting is a little bit more. So this is 1-1 one, one of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, and he gives, kind of, gives a description of where this is. Um, it, and it says, uh, he, threw, he threw this great banquet uh, for all his nobles and officials and military leaders of Persia and Media. Uh, so this is the... the the Persian Empire. Now, here's a map of how big this thing was. And you may not know this, but the Persian Empire, uh, Achaemenid Empire, it's also known as, was actually probably the largest of all the ancient empires in terms of both its scope uh, geographically and how many people were involved in it. You'll see it spreads all the way into Europe. Uh, Greece, it goes into, in, in, uh, into Asia. It's, it goes down into Egypt. And, of course, it encompasses the Holy Land. So this was the group that conquered... The Babylonians, that the Babylonian captivity had taken Israel uh, captive. And, it, and through that, uh, the Cyrus the Great, you might have heard that, he was the one who conquered. So in about 550 BC, he sweeps in. And they made all kinds of changes and it spread. And, and again, 50 million uh, people probably were under this. Um, we're about 30 years into this empire. And so the next king that comes up is, is Xerxes. He's also known as Ahasuerus, if you read somewhere in, sometimes in scriptures, Hebrew name uh, for him was Ahasuerus. And he, and he ruled in that area. It's the third year of his reign. Now, during that time, um, we, I'm not, again, I'm not going to repeat a whole lot of what happened there, but uh, in Susa, which is the capital city, the dispersed Jews, a lot of them had gone back. They'd gone home. But there were a whole bunch of them who never got there. And so they're living in this area, and there's a, they're part of a number of conquered uh, peoples in the group. But they weren't especially liked. And they were mistreated. And there's a lot of what, there's a lot of, like Rick said, there's some things that you'll see here that might be some parallels. The Persian Empire, while it built roads and all, all kinds of systems and did some positive things, it also was known for a handful of things. It was known for its debauchery. Okay, and you see in verse, I mean, the guys were throwing a half a year party to celebrate himself and say, look at us. I mean, that's pretty good work if you can get it, half of your party. Uh, uh, But it's also full of misogyny. I mean, the way women are treated in this environment is is just remarkable. And I just want to focus, just for fun, just just look at how this happens. So you heard how he summons his trophy wife to come in and parade, like, hey, guys, take a look at this. And she goes, huh, I'm not going to do it. And this is, look at chapter 1. Look at the reaction that happens. Uh, Mamukin replied in the presence of the king, this is verse 16, and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and, and the peoples of all the pro- provinces of King Xerxes. Xerxes. For the queen's conduct, watch, watch what he's scared is going to happen, it will become known to all the women. They'll despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she wouldn't come. 
This very day, the Persian Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end to the disrespect and discord. We cannot have this. We need our women barefoot and pregnant. We need them to know their place. Next thing you know, they're going to be talking back. They're going to be asking to vote. They're going to be wanting to drive. What, what is this, what's the world coming to? The misogyny is just so deep. And so he disposes, disposes of her and, and they do a, a beauty pageant. I know it might be hard to imagine a key politician who has a history with beauty pageants, but just it happens. <laughs> And so they raise up somebody to basically to be added to his harem because he has one. Now, the other thing that's true is just rampant racism. And entire subgroups, conquered subgroups, can't, were, this was not, by the way, uncommon. Genocide was not uncommon in, in this era. Just to eliminate them. If they're, a, if they're a threat, if they don't get in line, well, it's a simple thing. Comply or die. And so that's what's going on there. Now, Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther, her Persian name, shows up in chapter 2. And again, I, I just encourage you to read it because it really is a fascinating read. And when, when it, she's actually kind of a reluctant contestant. And she, she's an orphan and her cousin, second cousin probably, Mordecai, has been raising her near the capital city. But she, because all the women in the land have to come and be part of it, she shows up and they, they chose her. She may have been, by the way, as young as 14 years old when she was chosen for this beauty pageant. It's almost certain that she was a teenager, maybe a late teenager, at maybe 20 years old when the, what happened, the big events of chapter four happened. So think this, high school kid, maybe college, maybe early college is what's going on here. And she's brought in, she's placed in the harem, she's treated to all these treatments, she's exposed to the king, he has, he's allowed to have her way, his way with her, and she finds herself displaced and hiding her nationality and powerless and at a pagan king's whim. Now, here's some observations about this. Okay, so, so you look at the genocidal plan that happens in chapter 3, um, in verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned what Mordecai's, who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, and throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so he puts this thing into plan, this plan into place where they're going to eliminate. Now, a uh, movie album just this week, right? The First Purge, it's a kind of a reboot. Uh, prequel to the Purge series, and it seems like so, such a contrived idea where somebody would be given free license to do commit crimes like murder and just get, say, you can do it for this period of time. This was like the first Purge. This is what's going on here. And they say, we're going to have open season on Jews. It's going to be fun. Sharpen your sword, get out your weapons, it from, and we're going to pick a day by lot, they called it, and it actually was, it wasn't really so much a, a die or a dice as we know it. It would be a box and they would have colored rocks in it with a little hole in the box. They'd put them in and whichever one came out, the color of it indicated either a person's name or a month of the year. This time it was month of the year and it's the month of Adar, which is February to March. They said, and then they did a lot and said, which day is it going to be? And it was the 13th of Adar. They say, okay, that's the day. The big purge is coming. Everybody get ready. You can imagine the effect that would have on you as a Jewish person, to know this day is coming and I can do nothing about it. 
it fell into what, some of you heard, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Heard that in school, remember that? The law of the Medes and Persians was going on at this time, which was an irrevocable law. The king himself could not change the law once he signed it. it would, and he stamped it, it went into effect. And so that was done to say, we're going to eliminate these people. And so now these guys, the displaced Jews, they're 900 miles away from Jerusalem. Completely out of the focus and perhaps the view of God, they don't see, there's pagan gods all around them. They don't, they, don't have a, they don't have a temple. They don't have a place to worship. They don't have anything. And they probably, I would guess, feel like we're, we're lost. There's nothing, nothing else is in control here. And this is what we're going to see from this story. Now, you heard it said that the name of God is not mentioned, right? But here what, here's what we're going to see is that everything no matter where it is, 900 miles removed from where they think God is active, there is still somebody pulling the strings. There is still somebody up to something. There's still somebody who's got a plan. Now, um, in, in the, the, this whole series, they'll, try to, they'll tell you what, something I absolutely is, think is true. All these videos will say the Bible is one story. It's just one story. There's different ways of saying what that one story could be called. This is what I've done with our church when I walk through this uh, kind of thing. I, we, this is the phrase we use to say, if there's one story to the Bible, this is, how, this is how you put it. It is the making and redeeming of God's kingdom. Everything that happens has to do with God making a kingdom, has a vision for that kingdom, and he's going to redeem that kingdom. His son is the center point of redeeming that kingdom that fell at, through our first parents. But every story you see has something to do with the raising up, the choosing of a land through which God was, the land was chosen because God was, his delivery system was going to be delivered to that land. The people was a delivery system through which this, the whole sacrificial system was a delivery system to get to the place where he said, I got a vision and a plan. I'm going to redeem my kingdom to the way it was intended to be. My son is going to come and fulfill that whole thing. But every part of that, the Jews were big, big part. They're the vehicle in which God's plan is riding. So think about it. If God has a plan and the Jews are eliminated as the vehicle, that really messes up the plan. But you're going to see that God says, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, my plan's still working. My plan has not stopped. I'm going to see to that. And so the making and redeeming of God's kingdom, just make a mental note if you like, that that's that's what's going to underlie this. Now, Mordecai says to his cousin through a series of he, he's not even allowed into the main courts where she is, and she's in the harem. And she's just, she's put in the harem, and she's forgotten, by the way. Like, okay, had you, that sounds good. He, he, she says later, I haven't even talked to the guy in, th- in 30 days. But Mordecai says, I think I see something. I see something being arranged here. You're, you're the only one among us who's in a position to have any kind of audience with this guy. And so he c- approaches her, with a suggestion. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text, the Edict of the Annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther. This is through a messenger. Mordecai is giving it through a messenger. And to explain to her, he told him, urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for for mercy and plead with him for her people. The, the messenger, Hathak, went, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And she instructed him to say something. Now, you're going to hear her say something here, and you're going to go, oh, that's terrible. But I want you to think with me for a minute, okay? What do you think you would do? 
She's in a position where I, if I go unannounced and uninvited to this pagan king who hasn't wanted to even look at me for three days. This is somebody, by the way, who has just deposed the, uh, one queen. I go in and go, I'd like to talk to you. If he doesn't extend his scepter, which was the act of grace to say, okay, I'm going to decide to grant you favor. If he doesn't do that, I'm taken out and never seen again. She's 19 years old when she's being asked to do this, maybe. How would you have reacted? If, are, if there are any teenagers in the room, especially, you go, you're a high school student, you're asked to go to a foreign king in a place where they kill Americans and say, I'd like to ask your mercy on the people who are being held in, you know, for human rights violations? How would, how would you feel about that? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not touching that situation. I'm just, I'm going to be honest with you. And that's her initial reaction. Okay, look what, what, what it says. It says, uh, she instructed him to say to Mordecai, verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, he's put to death. The only exception for this is, that, is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go on to the king. Now, what she's basically saying is too much risk. Or maybe you've heard, maybe you thought this phrase before, this is not my fight. Or this phrase, what could I do? It's a very natural, normal reaction. I'm just a harem girl. You might have heard this week in Florida, they, uh, they dropped charges. They're not going to be charged against five teenagers who videotaped a drowning man. Did you hear about that? About a year ago. He was out in the middle and they're making fun of him and you see, and it's a horrifying picture of just a man struggling and they're laughing about it and they're saying, shouldn't have gone out there and it's all on video. He dies, he drowns. His family is completely irate and these teenagers, one of them was 18 it turns out at the time, everybody's calling for their heads. They went through the whole court system and they declared it this week. Let me, let me read you what they said. They will not be charged with a crime. As previously, as, previ as previously acknowledged by the Cocoa Police Department and it's this office, there is no Florida law that requires a person to provide emergency assistance under the facts of this case. Now, if you're like me, that really bothers you. That really bothers you. But everybody has a choice when they're in a tough situation. And are you required to do anything? Was Esther required to do anything here? She's just a kid. She's in a foreign land. She's not even liked. She's hiding her identity. She knows what, how, how high, the, what are the percentages? And it, this is going to go well. And she goes, not my fight. I'm powerless. Don't ask me. Somebody else. That somebody, oh, somebody should do something. How, how often have you heard that? Somebody should do something. Somebody should say something. Well, just not me. And Mordecai is going to respond to that. And this is where you get some perspective and an invitation that's given. So look at uh, verse, again, ch chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But... Oh, make no mistake, he's saying, you and your family, your father's family will perish. 
You say, you're, this, is, you're, this is not going to change. And, and with uh, due respect to the uh, literary uh, symmetry that you saw, which is absolutely right about how this book is written, the centerpiece of the book is not the switch from, from Haman to Mordecai. The centerpiece, the emotional center, the spiritual center of this book is what comes up right now. This is, this is, when the, this is the true spiritual pivot point when he says, so, understand, there's two things he says. One is, deliverance is going to come. It's going to come one way or another. And then he says what, what you've probably heard if you've been around the church or studied Esther before. In verse uh, 14, uh, you and your father's family will perish, but who knows that you've come to royal position, remember, have you heard this phrase? For such a time as this. For such a time as this. Here's what he's saying. Every position a person finds himself in has a purpose. Every position you find yourself in, we'll come to this, oh, it, it's intentional. It has a purpose. It has potential there. Even the ones that seem inconsequential, even the ones that seem like, what does God have to do with this? What does God have to do with a pagan king having a beauty contest 900 miles from Jerusalem? Every position has a purpose. And I'm gonna, you're going to hear this from me a, a couple times over the next several weeks. It's a, just a little triplet, truth triplet that I have used, that I use in my own life, and I'm going to encourage you to just think about. Okay? No matter what situation you're in, when you, when you are walking with God and you're having a, pursuing a relationship with him, there are three, a triplet of three things that are true every moment of everything you're experiencing. Uh, let me just get, I'll just jump ahead and say, whatever your situation is right now, the thing that you hate that's going on, the thing that just seems so out of control, these three things are always true. Here they are. God is good. Two, God is in control. And, God, and three, God will God is good. Doesn't matter what, what it looks like in the short term. God is good. He is, he is incapable of not being good. God is good. He's good to you. God is in control of your situation. And God will prevail over this situation. That's what Mordecai is saying. Look, deliverance is going to come. He, there, there's something that's absolutely true. And even though God is not named, this is the genius of this writing. God is permeating every part, every square inch of this story. He's behind everything that's going on. And he, that it reveals he is part of and embedded in every environment. Which means he has a whole lot to do with the position you find yourself in right now. Oh, he's aware. God is good. God is in control. God will prevail. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's, it's pleasant. You know that. But somehow, when I can actually not just make that poetry or like a Hallmark card, when I can actually say, I'm going to restate it and I'm going to declare and know that it's true in my heart right now, that those three things are true, my perspective changes, at least a little. I don't have to like what I'm going through. But I have some kind of hope, some kind of assurance. Mordecai is saying that to, to his his cousin here. And then you see her response. Something, I don't know how God works in this, but she responds to that. And look at verse uh, 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. 
Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my maids, will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And then that phrase, and if I perish, I perish. Here is the centerpiece of the, of the story. If you're taking notes, this is where I would say circle this somewhere or if you make notes. Those things are, go- are, are true right now in this story and it's, it's gonna be true. And maybe you're in this position for a reason. Esther 4, 13, 15. And then you see a couple things happen, all right? In her response, you see two things happen. First, there is an element that says, I need to transfer my trust. And so that she does that through inviting for prayer and fasting. There's no magic to this. It's not like she came up with a system. Three days doesn't mean anything more than two or one or however many. But she basically says, okay, we're going to call out and get serious about inviting God into the situation. We're gonna, I'm going to put my trust in him. That's what the whole fasting time is about. There's trust. You ever heard the, old, the old song? Trust and obey. Trust and obey. There, here it is. I'm going to trust And then, I'm not just going to trust, I'm going to step out, I'm going to act. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to use this position to actually do something. And this phrase gets used, I'll go to the king even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Why would somebody do that? Perhaps it's because they know that triplet of truths. Even if that happens, God is good. God's in control of this, and God will prevail. I can choose to trust that. Now, I'm going to f- go fast forward through the, what happens. It really is kind of cool, and I wish we could take more time on it. But the whole thing where ha- uh, Haman is exposed, and he, uh, his, his motives are exposed, and then he is, the, the, the fr- you know, there's a phrase that comes out of this story. You ever heard the phrase that he was hanged on his own gallows? That, co- that comes from Esther. That's where this comes from. He created the gallows. Now, by the way, the gallows, we picture nooses and ropes. But all the, the words that's actually used there, it's not about that. And I think the, the video did it well. It's actually a set, it was a 75 foot high, by the way, Spike. Can you imagine? Seven and a half stories high. This guy really, really wanted to show, show his enemies. And, and it's just a spike with a point, and they, and they somehow get him up. And often what would happen is they take it down, and then they would just, I'm sorry, I don't want to be graphic. They would just ram it right up where the sun don't shine, and then they would lift it back up, and he, they would be left there often for a week. Basically, it says this is what happens to people to oppose, who oppose this kingdom. Now, if you're like me, you take some kind of sick pleasure in that, and it's just because I'm an evil person at heart, but, but, but there's something behind that, and that is there's a miraculous turn of the tables here, and in chapter 9, it just, I'll just mention this real quick. They, so they have this, the, the party that they throw, and this, and because they, they prevail and they're able to defend themselves and then the Jews are elevated and all this turn happens. And it says, um, on the 13th day of the 12th month, month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. The Jews got the upper hand. If you just read through, verse five says, the Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword. And then they say, we need to celebrate this. And so poor is the word for lot, but we get lottery from it, by the way. Same, same root. Purim is plural. It means the lots were cast. And so that became a celebration 
for the Jewish people that says, we know that the God who redeems is working through this nation and man, every time we turn around, he's, he's coming in, he's, he's, he's helping us escape. If my, my daughter worked, was actually worked in New York City for a while and she worked for a Jewish-owned company. She said every time, like, it was like every other week they'd say, you know, it'd be Wednesday, they'd say, see you Monday. And she'd say, Monday? Yeah, well, there's a holiday. Or see, they skip a day. It's like there's Jewish holidays. Jew, working for Jewish companies is fantastic. You get all these extra days off. And, what, and, and they have all these days that they've celebrated. And in the Jewish communities, what they'll say is this. They'll say basically every holiday they have it commemorate, commemorates the same thing. And that is this. They tried to kill us. We lived. Let's eat. <laughs> and a sovereign God has has superintended over that to keep his plan into place every step of the way. So this story has significance. It has significance on several levels. One is historically because Mar- next March, uh, first day of spring, next March, March 9th, I think it's 19th, it switches, but 19th, 20th, I think, 2019, Purim will be celebrated again. It, to this day, it's celebrated. It's historical of what God has done to preserve his one story the making and the redeeming of his kingdom has been kept intact. It also has theological, so it's historically there's significance, but theologically it has significance. Because it means there is, whether you like him, whether you acknowledge him or not, whether you believe in him or not, there is something that's still true in the environment all around you. And that is that there is an all-pervasive plan going on that an all-sovereign God is superintending over. That God who is good and in control and will prevail. But there's one other way that this is significant and because it, it's significant personally. Okay, now this is where I want to say, okay, hang on. Cool story. When you walk out of here today, how will this affect you? Like, does it? I mean, maybe it inspires you. Oh, that's neat. Oh, it's so much more than that. I'm going to give you three statements that, of ways we can apply this story to our situation, your situation, and mine. Here's the first statement. Here's, what, here's how this can apply. See your current position, whatever it might be, as strategically arranged by God. There's an old Italian proverb. Wherever I go, that's where I am. It's not really Italian, but we claim everything. That, that, that's either profoundly deep that I don't even understand it, or it's just really kind of nonsense, right? Of course, wherever you go, that's where you are. Can I suggest a tweak to that? For us who live this out, wherever I go, that's where God has me for a purpose. Now, some of us in the room right now, you are in a situation, you are in a position right now where you just hate where you are. You hate it. It, it's, it's a job situation, it's an oppressive environment in a neighborhood or a family dynamic or financial load or what, a physical ailment, whatever, but you hate where it is. God doesn't ask you to pretend you don't, that you like it. But when you're in that position, I mean, come on, let's be honest. What I want to, what I, what I, the way I view that position and my attitude toward it is I need to get out of this position, right? That's my natural thought. How do I get out of this position? That becomes job one for me to figure a way to get out of it. Or at least, how do I survive? The Jews are going to be threatened. How do I survive? That's what Esther's thinking. Okay, some of you hate that position, position you're, you're in. Some of you love your position right now. 
Things are, you know, you love where you live, you love your family dynamic, you love your job, you love your situation. Things are good. And when you're in that position, generally what we think is job one is keep it together, right? Like, don't mess this up. Let's just keep things going. This is good. Let's keep it this way. Can I suggest to you that that one of the applications of the God of Esther is that there, with, it, with every position, there is potential and there's a possibility. And so see that position as been, being strategically arranged by God. God has a purpose. And the purpose is not just to try to make you feel bad or good. The purpose is to accomplish something else. And you've seen, we see this all through Scripture. You've, you've probably went through, gone through Genesis. Joseph went through all that he went through. And Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but look, there was something else going on in my tough position. There was something else. God intended it for good. Remember truism one. To accomplish what is now being done, two and three. The saving of many lives. The apostle Paul was in prison. He was shackled. He had a job and a mandate to spread the, the message of Christ and he couldn't get out to do it. But, he, but this is what he wrote to the Ephesians. Pray for, also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains right now. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I am in this position for purpose. What might it be? It turns out he's got a captive audience, Roman guards, and he's like, you're going to hear this message whether you like it or not because I'm not going anywhere. Every position has a purpose. Let's bring this to where you and I live. You right now, whatever, if if something comes to your mind where you think about the position you're in, position in your family, position in your neighborhood, job, school, wherever it might be, understand, you're God's feet on the ground there. Even if you hate it, even if you want out of it, you're his feet on the ground. Esther was God's feet on the ground in that situation. That purpose is beyond you and what your goals are or what you think your story is supposed to be. God has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. This is how Paul said it to the Romans, the Romans, Romans 14, 7 and 8. None of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. You're, it, that's not, you have a purpose behind what, what, whether you, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, whatever happens in that situation, we're the Lord's. I'm part of his plan. I'm invited to be part of, the, part of his plan. Here's the second statement. First one, whoops, I just lost my thing. Here we go. See, I knew this would happen, right? I got, I got a backup plan. My, we'll see if the backup plan works. kind of church is this technology yeah, I'll tell you what no I'm kidding see your curtain position whatever it might be is strategically arranged by God then see the plight of those who can't speak for themselves as opportunity to speak for them Esther was not a politician she was not a warrior she was not a leader she wasn't can I say she wasn't a man in that culture she had no platform but she had a voice and she said I'm in this position and there's some people who don't have a voice right now. I can be their voice. This is how Proverbs says it. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is Proverbs 31. This is written to a king. This is just before the Proverbs 31 woman is introduced, by the way. 
But he said, King Lemuel said, look, you've got to, you're in a position, use it. And without chasing that rabbit too far, let me just ask you to think about this. Wherever you are, there might be somebody who doesn't quite have a voice. It might not just be anti-bullying kinds of things. It might be somebody who needs defended. Are you in a position where your voice can at least be part of an alternative view that says there's something else to consider here? Who needs a voice that you know, that you're near? Who could benefit from somebody putting a risk, putting this, their status and their reputation and their security on the line for that? Be present there. And here's the third one, statement I just, to apply it to ourselves. See your times as an outsider or a minority as a chance for God's greatest impact to be made through you. Where are you most intimidated to let it be known that you are associated with Jesus? Where do you find yourself most uncomfortable there? Where, where do you feel like if you were to talk about things that are unpopular truths about God's way because the culture is saying one thing, but you know something else that he said it, where are those places for you? See your time in that position as an opportunity because, see, God showed up when Esther stepped out. God's power, his impact is made he has chosen to entrust that you and I as the channel for that. But it doesn't happen until we find ourselves in that position where we're maybe an outsider or a minority or unliked, but we see it as a chance to introduce something that makes an impact. You can be in that environment and you can represent God's truth and his person and his son with grace. You can do it with sincerity. You can do it with winsomeness. You can do it with conviction in a way that says, it may, I don't know what, if I perish, I perish. But this is a chance, this is an opportunity for God's impact to be made. Something will happen when you not just see yourself there as a purpose, but you trust God and then you act. Then you put it into practice. You do what you can do in that moment. So the crowd circles up. There is nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. This guy's twice my size. He's walked toward, toward me. He's make, everybody's laughing. They're all, the, and they start the, the, the chant. Do you remember the play, playground stuff? Fight, 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 fight. I, I, did not, I did not sign up for this. This is my first day of school with my little tie. This kid, Carl, he steps out, and then he does something that I had never seen anybody do in my entire life. He does this. <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm, I'm thinking, what is, what is, what's he doing? What is this? Come on, come on, come on. I, I don't know what that means. Come on, chicken, he's calling me names. Come on, come on. And I'm just standing there. I'm confused. And this all happened probably in about 13 seconds, but it felt like an hour. He comes, I'm... I'm petrified, I feel like I can't stand, and then he charges after me, at me. And in that moment, I did the only thing I knew to do. I reached out and I kicked him in the groin and he doubled over. 
And he, when he doubled over, I grabbed him by the shoulders and I brought up my knee and I kneed him in the head. He goes down to the ground. There's dirt and grass. I take him and I'm banging his head against the dirt and I'm going, I'm winning. I'm winning. But I can't get him to bleed because there's no concrete. And now everybody's charging and the, and the teachers are finally making, the teachers always show up. It's like the police cars in the movies. You know, they always show up right after the thing is over. Poli uh, teachers are clearing everybody out. And I stand up and, and Carl's on the ground. I stand up and I won. And the kids all look and they just have stunned looks on their faces. And they all say the same thing. You fight dirty. <laughs> I, I didn't know any different. But... I never got in another fight my entire career. See, sometimes we find ourselves in positions where we don't know what we're capable of. We don't know why we're there. But when we can just do what we can do, something can happen. What might happen? What might happen in your neighborhood, in your home, in your church, in your in your job, in your culture, if, so, if, if nothing else is, we just say, if I perish, I perish, but I am in this position for a purpose, and I'm going to say to God, accomplish it through me. What is that for you? Pray with me. God, I don't want to diminish the fact that I know that in this room, there are some really, really challenging, difficult situations people are facing. A lot of pain, a lot of tension. A lot of these folks have gone through a lot. A lot are having a hard time seeing you as having any purpose in what they're going through. Lord, I know you understand that. I also know that you're the only one we can run to. But there's an assurance, God, that I hope that, I pray that you'll just drive deep in me and in all of us, that there is a God who is superintending over every part of that, and that God is good. That God, that God is in control of this. That God will prevail. I pray then that we would find just the trust that would say, I'm going to look past just my discomfort or I'm going to look past the desire just to protect myself or keep my good things going. And I'm going to say, I'm here for a reason that we would ask you what it is and that we would be a voice. We'd be arms and legs to say, we can make a difference. You can work if we simply act on that and see it as part of your plan. Would you accomplish that in us? And then would you, in this moment, help us be re people who just would respond and say, today I'm ready to say, yeah, okay. I'm ready to follow where you go. Make that happen, we pray through your son.